Can you see that person? Am I talking? Alright, soldiers, let's get down to brass tacks. Give us your name and press affiliation. Hi, my name is Tanner Richard Kraft. I work for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. You may know me from my great article exposing that Austin doesn't know the difference between Weezer and Weedus. I'm Rain. Rain Conversi. I don't have a joke. We can't stop here. This is moving our country. And I am Bert Scheister, editor-in-chief of Teenage Anarchist Monthly. This is Bomb Squad Movie Night, episode 133. Tonight we're talking about the most expensive midnight movie of the 1990s. The exotic tale of substance abuse and savagery that has obsessed counterculture rebels since it was published as a book back in 1971. What? Who? Wait! We can't stop here. This is bad country. Terry Gilliam's box office flop turned cult classic, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. But before we spin our yarns about today's celluloid nightmare, we prepared an appetizer of the strangest caliber for you. What are some surrealist movies that we know and love? Films that are skewed, twisted, and borderline Freudian in nature. We'll start with Tim. One of his all-time favorites is Mandy, so he's undoubtedly familiar with all things Far Out. Before uh, you had the questions up in the group chat, I was thinking the first question would probably be either favorite drug movie or favorite Johnny Depp movie. So I prepared my answer for drug movie, which you already mentioned is the Panos Cosmatos film Mandy. It's full of very psychedelic colors, themes of uh, a man who, on his tale of revenge, takes some bad acid and goes on some bad trips. I carry God's gift in my heart, not you! I'm your god now. It's very visually interesting, very ethereal. Can't recommend it enough. I can't wait until 2028 so I can do my episode on that shit. Show's canceled. Sorry, Tim. I'm going to murder you in your house. Yes, house. Yeah, now. I'm going to give you a house so I can murder you in it. <laughs> I'm sorry. Just like the Manson family. <laughs> I'm the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's business. <laughs> Next in line for the firing squad is Tanner, a man who by sheer force of fucking frequency is bound to have encountered cinematic strangeness that could shake a priest into doubting God. Yes, uh, in the group chat you specifically mentioned the one movie by the one fuckhead whose name I can't remember and the name of the movie I can't remember. Maya DeAngeline, or whatever it is. Uh, that's not my answer, I just wanted to say the name of the movie. My actual answer to this isn't just a movie that I love, it's the movie that inspired me to become a filmmaker. Swiss Army Man. Huh? I have the poster for it just off screen. Swiss Army Man is a very surrealist movie where the first fart a corpse makes makes you laugh and the last fart the corpse makes makes you cry. When I saw this movie, it was 2017, January of 2017. I was depressed. I hated being a computer science major. I was sitting there being like, why the fuck couldn't I get into Webster's acting program? I'm miserable. I hate this. I was about to flunk out of college. And then I saw Swiss Army Man and I realized that my problem was I didn't have a creative outlet. And more importantly than that, I realized that even if I can't be in front of the camera, I wanted to make movies no matter what. Swiss Army Man is the surrealist masterpiece that helped me realize that. 
It's this sort of neo-realistic, magical, realism, Scott Pilgrim, farting, wizard corpse bullshit. All of the above. Uh, it's made by the filmmakers that made my favorite movie of all time, Everything Ever All at Once. If you liked Everything Everywhere All at Once, I can't recommend Swiss Army Man enough. But I've always Shut up! You don't know the real world, Manny. What if they meet you and they don't see what I see? What uh, if they don't... Uh, that's stupid. I obviously think Everything Everywhere is better, but Swiss Army Man is also really fucking good. Thank you very much, Tanner. Words from the heart. Finally, it's Rain's turn on this demented carousel. You can tell from Rain's screenplays alone that he's gone for a dive in the deep end of the pool and discovered haunting things in the water. I would say, man, there's so many to pick that I um, was just kind of a little lazy and to try and get like my brain jog and try and like narrow down a list on Letterboxd, I just looked up Surrealist and then the first movie on the first list I saw showed a house. So I was like, okay, I'm going to do house. 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 Wait a minute. This isn't House MD. You can't keep getting away with it. It's a movie that loves being a movie. You can tell like the whole creative team, they used every sort of like fun trick they've either tried before and wanted to improve on or like been itching to do. And they did it there. It was just every style, everything. It's all at once. Is it something funny, Tanner? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, when you described how you looked up Surrealist on Letterboxd and just went with the first movie you saw, I decided to do that myself, and for some reason the first movie that popped up for me was Sherlock Jr., the Buster Keaton movie. What? <laughs> Fuck! <laughs> it's broken! Now it's my turn to tell stoners that I've never met what to watch the next time they score a bag of caps. And although this recommendation is not conventional like your Andalusian dogs or your meshes of the afternoon, I wholeheartedly believe the 2011 non-narrative documentary Samsara is far enough from resembling the average film that it might qualify to most as surreal. Shot on glorious 70mm, filmed in 25 different countries, Samsara is a thought-provoking exodus into places you either never knew existed or have never seen in such startling clarity. Next up on this godforsaken list is the 1980 animated Hungarian film Bubble Bath, a recommendation from our resident animation expert Ethan Hawker. 43 years before Across the Spider-Verse made waves, throwing every animation style at you like Technicolor baseballs, Bubble Bath sat in some distant corner of animation fandom, lying in wait to completely overwhelm and fuck up whatever poor soul discovered its outrageous existence. Then last up, we've got the 1969 Soviet-Armenian film, The Color of Pomegranates. Once on a voyage to discover what films could have possibly influenced Wes Anderson's directorial style, I wandered upon this revolutionary act of visual poetry and was totally fucking struck by its beauty! Mikhail Vardanov once said it was the greatest leap forward in cinematic language since D.W. Griffith and Sergei Eisenstein. If you're like me and you need to fill that hole in your heart left by the fact there's only one movie quite like The Holy Mountain, The Color of Pomegranates, will stave off the sadness for 80 minutes. But no more grandstanding about film school deep cuts. It's time to ride that strange torpedo to the city that never sleeps. Are you ready for that? Checking into a Vegas hotel under a phony name with intent to commit capital fraud and a head full of acid. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is an adaptation of the 1971 semi-autobiographical novel by Hunter S. Thompson. It tells the story of two drug maniacs who travel from L.A. to Vegas on a mission to find the American Dream. A box office flop upon release in 1998, grossing only $14 million on an $18 million budget, Fear and Loathing is now considered a cold classic 25 years later. There's uh, two women fucking a polar bear. 
Don't tell me those things. Tell me, boys. What are your overall thoughts on fear and loathing in Las Vegas? We're starting with Bomb Squad's only member that is within a 50-mile radius of the Sunset Strip. Rain Conversi. Lay it on us, you beautiful fucking maniac. I want to say this movie was uh, among the first movies I saw when I fell down my uh, film buff rabbit hole when I was 15, so it was definitely one of those ones that left the most impact on me out of all those. I watched it a couple more times since then, but it's been years since my last viewing, so I was quite worried that I was setting myself up for disappointment, but I was ever grateful when I discovered that unlike when I thought Tyler Durden was like, you know, he was like, oh, he's the cool guy, everything he's saying is right in Fight Club, <laughs> which I also saw when I was 15. Sometimes 15-year-old me has a point and has good taste. That is the case with Fear and Loathing. <laughs> To prep for the prank, I actually also listened to the audiobook alongside the rewatch. And it really made me appreciate, like, how good Terry Gilliam was at translating Thompson's prose really effectively into, like, this visual odyssey that we have. And I really appreciate, like, some intricate touches that I noticed this recent viewing for the drug of the movie. He'll use, like, the same sort of lighting and lenses and stuff like that. I think that, you know, really adds to the nightmare of it all. These are people, like, at their fullest with their technical skill and creativity just, like, intersecting beautifully. I think it's neat how he couldn't resist, like, just adapting, like, entire passages of dialogue, basically, as Hunter's voiceover. I need this, right? I remember your face. There is no way of explaining the terror I felt. Guy's a great writer, so I'm, I'm not complaining hearing that over lizards and Texans talking about people getting their legs chopped off or something. Two more things I wanted to talk about is that, uh, one, I think the movie has great performances across the board, great casting, you know, just weird guys like that guy who faced in the lobby that we see before Benicio Del Toro, like, kicks him out of the way. Also, Benicio Del Toro, he doesn't get enough, like, credit for this role, I think. As your attorney, I advise you to rent a very fast car with no top. Mm-hmm. And you'll need the cocaine tape recorder for special music. Well, we're going to have to arm ourselves to the teeth. Obviously, I think Giant Up does a good job with Hunter. You know, a great job sort of capturing his essence and whatnot. I think it's too bad that no one talks about this porn stuff because he's great at just playing like a force of chaos. Also, I'm glad that they show some scenes like this is not a, just like a fun time, not a wacky feel-good comedy the whole time. Having dark scenes like the diner scene where they're just like complete shits. It's kind of like a one of the more objective scenes drug-wise and just like point of view-wise. I appreciate that. Apparently that wasn't in earlier drafts of the scripts. You know, Terry put it back in, which is, you know, nice. Uh, I'm done. Back to you, Austin. Thank you, Rain. I'm excited. I at least know in my notes I'm going to elaborate on that diner scene and what it meant to me. Next up, we have a man who is surely experiencing some type of psychic jet lag from transitioning so immediately from a beautiful wedding into this drug-induced fever dream. Tim M. Sullivan, what's your two cents? Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is a movie that I've been wanting to watch ever since I was 14 years old and I first watched the music video for Avenged Sevenfold's Backcountry. But for whatever reason, I just never got around to seeing the movie until now. Damn, I never rode a convertible before! Is that right? Well, I guess you're about ready then, aren't you? Were you friends? But I, I did have a good time with it. I thought it was a very interesting movie. I think it's sort of on that same wavelength as Heavy Traffic, where like I definitely need to watch this more times to fully appreciate it. But I think I got more out of this first-time experience than I did with Heavy Traffic. Uh, uh, you're Someone should stop them! You poor 
fools just don't understand, do you? This car is property of the World Bank. That money goes to Italy. You people voted for Hubert Humphrey, and you killed Jesus! I think it's a great exploration of this drug-induced insane trip. Like, one thing that stands out to me in particular watching it in 2023 is that, like, all the CGI stuff during the trips is very dated, but that works in the movie's favor because it looks fucking weird. And, like, all of the stuff with, like, the practical effects, like, when everybody's just turning into lizards, that's something that, <laughs> I, like, I think it was made at the perfect time where, like, seeing all of that done in practical is just much more funny than now they would probably just use CGI and that would be boring. But I think there's just a lot of really good technical stuff going into it, like Rain was saying. I also really appreciated how they kind of shot the, like, bad trip scenes almost as a horror movie. Because, like, I personally have never done anything harder than weed. But, like, weed can even take you down some bad spirals sometimes. And I definitely felt that, like, watching some of these scenes. Just seeing how far down the rabbit hole of despair it can take you. If you're not a fan of seeing people vomit, maybe stay away from this one, but it's definitely worth a watch if you want to see some insane shit. Back to you, Austin. Apparently, after the first, like, focus group screening, the Universal Picture executives had two complaints, one of which was the amount of vomiting in the movie, and the other of which is something from the movie that's so obscene, I, I barely can speak on it here. But we all know, we all know what it is. And rounding out our panel, the man who visited the film today for the first time in 11 years, local pop-punk fanatic and known materialist, Tanner Richard Kraft. Uh, first off, I'm on, on enough drugs for this, so I'm just gonna... Oh my god! Mm, Alright, now I am. I haven't seen this since I was 14 years old. It was one of my first ever R-rated movie experiences, and I remember as a kid thinking it was really cool, but also not really thinking much beyond other than really cool. I probably immediately followed this up with Fight Club, similar to Rain's story over here. Unlike Rain, I'm not a coward. Tyler Durden is still correct. I do think that you should blow up I think you should do an eco-terror Anyway, watch how to blow up a pipeline. It's an instruction manual. Just normal demonetized for this. We're super demonetized. <laughs> They're about to take our ass to the Stone Age. Advanced demonetized. Tanner, what's that dot on your forehead? <laughs> Great movie. Uh, the first half is really, really funny. I was laughing my ass off a lot. There was uh, I was texting Austin my thoughts to the movie, and I would always tell him when like a specific bit would get to me. I think the bit that made me laugh the hardest was the bit with White Rabbit in the bathtub and everything. I don't know why, but that bit was so fucking funny. And I told Austin, I guess this is what The Matrix 4 was about. Don't fuck with me now, man. I am Ahab. And then the second half of the movie gets dark, right around the time that What's-Her-Name shows up, Lucy. Is she supposed to be, like, 15 in this? Because that's the vibe yeah, I got. Please. Yes. And I did not like that, and the entire- the, the vibes for the rest of the movie were rancid because of that. They gave you what? LSD. That's Jason! Double castration! 
Except at the very end when Gonzo gets on the plane and he does the tricky dicky two peace signs thing. <laughs> then it got funny again. I hate to say this because I despise the man with every fiber of my being, but sometimes you gotta hand it to Johnny Depp, who gives a really good, fun, engaging performance here, especially in the voiceover. Voiceover work is like a very thankless thing in movies like this. It's so hard to do it well, and I think Johnny Depp does it very well here. Bazooko's Circus is what the whole hip world would be doing Saturday night if the Nazis had won the war. This was the Sixth Reich. He adds a lot of character and oomph into his voice. Again, hate to give the man any credit, but he was once a well-acclaimed actor for a reason, and this is probably one of those reasons he is very good in this movie. So is Del Toro. I forgot Tobey Maguire was in this, and when he showed up with a yep. blonde wig, I like had a mini stroke, I think, because I was like, he's allowed to do that? The second funniest bit in the movie, other than the bathtub part, might be when Johnny Depp rewrites his entire plan just because he happens to see him. That part was funny to me, for one, because Johnny Depp freaks the fuck out, and two, it implies that Tobey Maguire hasn't really moved in the three days since he abandoned their hitchhiking adventure, and he's just kind of stuck where he's been, and he's just been kind of like standing there menacingly. Yes. <laughs> the number one thing about this movie, and I'm surprised neither Rain or Tim, especially Tim didn't bring this up, is the camera work. How kinetic it feels. Rain alluded to it earlier with how they like kind of keep the consistency depending what the what drugs they're on. I just like how it feels so close and yet so far away at the same time. Every close-up feels like there's a mountain between us, but every wide shot feels so intimate and dark. With a bit of luck, his life was ruined forever. I have never seen camera work like this in any other movie. Uh, that's not to say I don't have some issues with it. I think the movie's pacing kind of falls apart around the same time it gets really dark. I think every scene feels like it just drags a second too long when it gets dark, and maybe that's the point. Maybe Terry Gilliam's trying to make you uncomfortable as an audience member. I don't know. I just don't think it fully works for me. I do think the tonal whiplash is a bit much to take at first. It takes a bit for me to adjust to be like, oh, this is fucked up now. And hot take. The soundtrack, there are a couple of good songs in it, but for the most part, meh. Uh, that's probably going to be the hottest take I have today, and maybe after being called a pop-punk fanatic, my opinion on the music of this movie should be taken with a grain of salt, but I'm going to throw that out right. there anyway. Back to you, Austin. I, I think the soundtrack was intentionally chosen to be a little trite. Okay. At least I know that Yummy Yummy I've Got Bugs in My Tummy song was chosen because they couldn't afford the song they wanted. Fun fact, for the Adrenochrome sequence, they wanted to have Jimi Hendrix guitar to play, uh, but the Hendrix estate doesn't license out his music to any film with drugs in it. Take that for what you will. I have some news for the Hendrix estate about what Jimi Hendrix was doing. <laughs> Thank you so much, boys. I think everybody has made some valid points, which is why I must retaliate with invalid points. You think the cocaine spill in this movie was funny? You goddamn hogs? Any man worth his salt knows Annie Hall had the best cocaine spill ever recorded on film. I mean, it's true. Known Woody Allen fan, Austin Zwiebelman. I think it's the medicine talking. <laughs> Jesus! Did you see what God just did to us, man? Uh, to properly begin my thoughts... Ever since I grew my hair out in high school, I've looked like a person who's really into fear and loathing in Las Vegas. And that's because I am a person who's really <laughs> into fear and loathing in Las Vegas. 
I had to have watched this like a dozen times back in high school, and back then lots of my affection for this was primarily because I found the first 20 minutes to be completely flawless. Possibly some of the funniest shit I had ever seen in my entire life. God didn't do that, you did it. You're a fucking narcotics agent, I knew it. That was our cocaine, you pig, you fucking pig, sorry. But showing my friends this was always kind of awkward because of that steep drop-off in the second half and that weird kind of abrupt ending. At the time, in my, my intellectually inferior state, I had actually mistaken the film's deliberate turn for the worse as some kind of flaw in its craftsmanship. I was grading it like it was supposed to be Airplane or some other Zucker Brothers comedy, when in fact it's a little more profound than that. There was a fantastic universal sense that whatever we were doing was right that we were winning. That sense of inevitable victory over the forces of old and evil. The film got passed around to lots of people, Rain mentioned this, before Terry Gilliam actually got it made. Martin Scorsese, Ralph Bakshi, the guy who wrote Repo Man, I think his name is Alex Cox. Apparently one thing Gilliam noticed was earlier versions of the screenplay usually tried to cut the scene with the diner at the end, where Duke and Gonzo finally cross the line and terrorize an innocent waitress. It's all fun and games until somebody gets hurt, and in that diner, somebody got seriously fucking hurt. And watching that scene now, 29 years old with a better grip on American history, it was so fucking clear what that scene represents. This is Meredith Hunter getting stabbed to death at Altamont. This is the Manson family murders. It mirrors that horrible conclusion of the 1960s youth movement. They've talked the big talk about enlightenment, higher understanding, they've consumed enough drugs to expand their consciousness to be the size of a fucking Walmart supercenter, yet here's this ugly, horrible violence. You, in fact, cannot buy peace and understanding for three bucks a hit. I personally don't believe that the majority of Schedule 1 substances make you violent, but they aren't some magical instant cure that makes you a perfect person. Fuck, or even in the case of Dr. Gonzo, a decent person. And then there's that abrupt ending. One last flash of triumphant high-speed driving set to the same song from the beginning of the film, back when everything was fun. The cycle's repeating. There's more adventure in store for these two high-powered mutants. But now, like the 60s transitioning into the 70s, the audience has this sense that some grand experiment has failed. The drugged-up adventures will continue, but it's weird now. Something's not the same. And I love that. I think that empty feeling it leaves you with expresses what happened during that time in the movement really effectively. And uh, that's my take on it. But we've only just begun to talk. Don't change the channel. We'll be further dissecting this terribly odd creature and diving back into the deep end after this brief commercial break. See you soon. Welcome back to Bomb Squad Movie Night, episode 133. Two small orders of business before we get to general discussion. You've heard of movies on your screen, but what about movies on your wall? MoviePalette.com has art pieces featuring the unique color palettes of your favorite films, shipped directly to you. They have a wide selection of films, and you can even get one custom made for a small additional fee. Use our special code SQUAD15 to get 15% off your order at checkout. 
Meanwhile, greedy shysters at the top of the food chain are screwing over the hard workers who actually get the movies made. These 1% yacht club shitheads have enough money to last them a while. So, for the strikers to win, they need your help. Donate to the Entertainment Community Fund, the Stack List, or Groceries for Writers. Everybody works really hard on movies, 14-hour days, and all the profit should not be funneled into the hands of a dozen or so fucking desk jockeys. Do your part today. And now we're getting into general discussion, and I want to start with this absolute gem. So the cinematographer for this movie was Italian-born Nicola Pecorini, who was chosen by Gilliam because of his unique demo reel. The real big hook, you might ask. He's got only one eye. Fear and Loathing was what? shot by a one-eyed cinematographer. That's right. Welcome to general discussion. Who's got some more thoughts they want to share? Okay, so you were talking about earlier about how this movie has switched hands like 30 times over the 20 years of development since the book was published. From what I understand, when this movie was first entered development, they actually wanted the uh, ending song to be What I've Done by Lincoln Park. No, I'm kidding. That's not what I'm doing. The original cast, I can't remember who was going to play who, but originally, apparently, the producers of this movie wanted it to be Jack Nicholson and Marlon Brando. Yep. But they aged out of the parts before they could ever get to that point. Uh, my question to all of you is, uh, what do you think the Jack Nicholson, Marlon Brando version of this movie looks like? Easy Rider 2. Right. Easy Rider 2. Uh, but no, Nicholson's obviously Hunter because Nicholson has that craziness to him that is needed. But can, can Brando do Gonzo? I'm trying to think, is there a movie where Brando does Unhinged? Last Tango in Paris, but yeah, accidentally. Purposely unhinged? I don't think so. The Island of Dr. Moreau is kind of unhinged, but like not. Well, that everything about that movie's unhinged. I don't think anyone yeah. was having a good time making that. <laughs> Get it! Get your hands on my fucking head! No, no, no. Our vibrations were getting nasty, but why? So I want to bring this up very, very much. I think discussing adrenochrome and the role that it has played in the popular consciousness is important because this property is likely the origin of the right-wing adrenochrome myth, okay? It, it's a common far-right conspiracy that powerful weirdos are out there killing kids and extracting adrenochrome from them because this movie represents that drug as something you gotta, like, do a satanic ritual to get. In reality, okay, adrenochrome is synthesized in labs. It's a fairly benign chemical you can make without murdering anybody. One thing I thought was funny is in the commentary, which was recorded long before QAnon was a thing, Terry Gilliam recalls teenagers after the screenings being like, oh yeah, I know a guy who sells that. I know a guy who did adrenochrome, even though it's a made-up drug. Uh, he directly compared it to the big lie from Adolf Hitler's book, Mein Kampf. This is the idea that if you tell us a lie so huge, people are more likely to fall for it. And I think it's a fitting comparison because right-wingers fell for Hitler's big lie and the adrenochrome big lie. It's so weird to think this movie spawned something so fucking bizarre as, as that conspiracy theory, like the blood libel stuff. Could it just be that conservatives are stupid? Yeah, that is the consistent variable here. Speaking of right-wing stuff, I think it, it's really funny how even when back during this movie, the filmmakers knew about, like, cop phrenology, like, cop physiology, like, because, like, all the people at the law enforcement thing that they go to, like, they all look like cops. Yeah. Gary Busey. Yeah, Gary Busey plays a lonely cop in this movie who ad-libbed a gay thing. May I have a little kiss before you go? I'm very lonely here. Oh, mama. Wait, he ad-libbed that? 
That was pure Busey. That was a Busey. Gary Busey improvised Can I Kiss You. Yep. Uh, You know, I also recently improvised Can I Kiss You, but it was way less gay and way less Busey. I have to bring this up while we're on there, because I brought this up in the group chat, and I brought this up in my letterbox review. Uh, His name is H. Sullivan, but he spells it S U L L I V E N, (laughs) and I disagree. (laughs) It's not allowed. (laughs) I simply disagree. I disagree. I disagree, Gary. The Sullivans and the Sullivans have a uh, feud now. It's like a Hatfield and McCoy situation. (laughs) So get this, Pecorini didn't have enough money or resources to light the bazooka circus scene properly. But get this, he had this friend, Danny Eccleston, who was the gaffer on Deep Impact, which was shooting like right next door. So Pecorini just borrowed lights that weren't actively being used on Deep Impact in order to get the circus scene lit. Fear and Loathing was an $18 million film that had access to lights from an $80 million film. Let's get down to brass tacks here. How much for the ape? That is how you fucking save a movie right there. I actually did some, when you talked about in the opening how this movie had cost $18 million, I popped on the old inflation calculator to figure out what that would be today. The studio spent an equivalent of $33.5 million of today's money on this movie, and that makes me sad because I can't imagine a studio spending $33.5 million on the equivalent to today's money on a movie like this nowadays. Strike shit regardless, yeah. they are so risk-averse. Quick, Austin, how much was Boas Afraid? Like $40 million, I think, actually. 35. Yeah, I kind of do compare Boas Afraid and Fear and Loathing in my mind. Just as sort of polarizing films that would scare average people. You can't park your car here! Why not? Is this not a reasonable place to park? Reasonable? You're on a sidewalk! One more thing I guess I wanted to say in general discussion is I think it's interesting like how the book, very well received, considered a classic by the time this movie was made. And even though it's a very, like, it's a very faithful adaptation, if you like the book, you should like the movie and vice versa. So I'm just, I was very surprised by, like, how, besides doing bad in the box, it was also did bad uh, critically. Like, a lot of people were not into this movie. Yeah, it's like 50% on Rotten Tomatoes. And what's even funnier is thinking it came out at the same time as the Roland Emmerich Godzilla. Like, that was the thing that stopped out this really solid movie that has had a lot of longevity over the years, is the Roland Emmerich Godzilla. Hey! That movie also had a lot of longevity, I'll have you know. It inspired a very decent cartoon spin-off show. Yes! I think this is just the sort of movie that, like, it has to have its sort of second life on home video. Uh-huh. And you don't get to have those anymore, because studios just write shit off when it doesn't do well. Matt Damon weeping. Weeping on the side of the road, one lone tear. You could afford to not make all of your money when it played in the theater, because you knew you had the DVD coming behind the release. All right, uh, there were a couple of times when this film went absolutely buck wild with the set building just to make like a couple shots look cooler. The first time was when Duke and Gonzo are exiting the circus after Gonzo gets the fear and he starts falling backwards while trying to leave. For that shot, they built a whole set that was tilted on an angle. They had Depp lean forward while he walked so he would appear like he was walking upright. This way, Gonzo could lean back impossibly far as he walked. The second time was during the adrenochrome sequence. They constructed the hotel set in sections on wheels so they could literally make it twice as big when Duke is high as a kite on adrenochrome, like a fucking accordion. You took too much, man. You took too much, too much. 
which is just a lot of effort for like three shots. You know what I mean? Yeah. Terry Gilliam, he Jeez. made Brazil. He's got some balls on him. Yeah, no, he's one of my favorite directors for a while. Probably still up there for me. Didn't Terry Gilliam turn into one of those cancel culture is bad guys, or was that another guy? A surprising amount of people associated with this film turned out to be shitlords. Like, for instance, you know that waitress they, like, torture at the diner with their bullshit? That's Johnny Depp's ex-girlfriend, who testified that he threw a wine bottle square at her head. So not only did Johnny Depp and company terrorize this waitress in a movie, he did it in real life! Somehow Benicio Del Toro has walked away the most unscathed? Yeah, but I heard he killed a whole family family of people in Mexico once. Yeah, deserved, though. <laughs> Time to meet God. Yeah, it's amazing. Like, the monstrous Dr. Gonzo, the actor playing him, is, like, the one actor who's on stage. Yeah. yeah, the director, I mean, I don't think the director's done anything. He's just kind of a shithead with opinions now. Yes. I could yeah, be no, wrong. No. But Depp, I mean, we all know what Depp's did. Yeah, no, that the galaxy of difference. This episode's about to make the Johnny Depp supporters angry in the comments. It's going to make the conservatives angry in the comments. Uh, sorry, I said the same thing twice. So get this. This film had its own Justice League Henry Cavill mustache moment. They didn't get all the Tobey Maguire shots in one day, so they had to film with him again sometime later. His contract stipulated if they paid him $15,000, he'd keep his head shaved, but they didn't have the money to pay that at the time where they thought it wasn't, you know, important. Anyway, they filmed him with a bald cap on a later date and actually spent significantly more than $15,000 digitally removing the seam between the bald cap and his head. Justice League moment! I love the movies. <laughs> he said he understood, but I could see in his eyes that he didn't. He was lying to me. This film should have a Chinese cut like Fight Club where it just cuts at the end to like Duke and Gonzo were apprehended by the authorities. Yeah. <laughs> you can make that. We can upload it to the channel. I, I think I've said my piece. Other than uh, the final credit song of this movie should be either Teenage Dirtbag or Ocean Man. All right. Now I've guided my piece. Tim, Rain, any any uh, things you want to say before we exit general discussion and move to final thoughts? I know what my uh, next Fallout New Vegas playthrough is going to be. That's a good one. I like that. And that's it. Football season is over. No more games. No more bombs. It's time for final thoughts. Starting with Tanner. This is a great movie that has some uh, slight pacing issues, but when it works, it really works. It's not the best Terry Gilliam movie. We all know what the best Terry Gilliam movie is. It starts with a B, but... Baron Munchausen! That's correct. But I really like this one. Uh, it's a lot of fun, except when it's not fun, but when it's not fun, I still enjoyed it. Back to you, Austin. Hell yeah, Tanner. All right, Rain, what are your final thoughts? I want to say Tanner is wrong, but I have to rewatch Baron Munchausen. I was talking about Brazil. <laughs> uh, Baron Munchausen is the last PG-13 movie uh, to contain boobs, I think. Greatest movie ever made! It is a better movie, but I think I like this movie more. Still one of my faves. All right, Tim, final thoughts. Um, yeah, I'm glad that I finally got around to watching this one. I definitely want to give it some more watches to get a better appreciation of it. But it's a solid uh, psychedelic trip, man. Back to you, Austin. Hell yeah. And now to take us home. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is an enduring classic that's going to keep resonating with the youth for as long as America keeps Richard Nixon's evil anti-drug laws in place. It's like train spotting, but with no mea culpa. It carries that romantic idea that the rogue can get away with it in the end. 
and hopefully, as those high school kids and college freshmen learn more about the world, about history, or film production if they so dare, I think fear and loathing can remain profound and teach them new lessons, should they have the right kind of eyes. But, you know who's too weird to live and too rare to die? You! Oh! Panic at the Disco! The person watching or listening to this episode of Bomb Squad Movie Night! If you're listening to us on any of the audio platforms, rate us five stars and tell your parents that we're a menace to decent society. If you're watching this on Spotify video, we hope you enjoyed the uncensored version of this clinically insane excuse for a film review show. If you're watching on YouTube, thanks for the ad revenue. I hope the 4K visuals kept you happy. Head on over to our Patreon if you want to get your name featured at the end of our videos. We're getting by being paid beans per month right now. Imagine what kind of quality content we could output if we were getting paid double beans. Comment below and let us know. Do you like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas? Have you read the book? Is a new revolution on the horizon or did Nixon actually win in the end? Comment below and let us know. And while you're here, remember to click the like button so we know you're cool, hit the subscribe button so we know you're groovy, and hit the bell icon so peace and love will prevail. Tune in next week for a very bloody episode where we'll be talking about the 1973 Yakuza film Battles Without Honor or Humanity, a film that greatly inspired Quentin Tarantino to do what he does. You don't want to miss our breakdown of this absolute classic. Thanks again for tuning, and remember, yesterday's weirdness is tomorrow's reason why. Stay safe out there. Good lord! What the, what the fuck was in those pills? There he goes. Too rare to live, too Tim to die. We can't stop here. This is bat country.